All right. Well, we're so pleased to have acclaimed award-winning sound designer, Robert McKenzie on the Globe Screen podcast. Welcome, Robert. Thank you, Seth. It's great to be here. I guess, tell us a little bit about your background. How did you first mm -hmm. get involved in becoming a sound designer? Well, I um, was a musician and I needed to get a real job. So uh, it seemed like a logical place to, to land doing something in the realm of sound. And I was lucky enough to, to get a job at a local sound studio in Melbourne that, you know, happened to have international acclaim. It was run by, a, and still is run by, a, a, a man called Roger Savage who, you know, mixed Mad, their first Mad Max and then uh, went on to mix films like Empire Strikes Back and had a, a US career and sort of then brought that back to Australia and worked with directors like, you know, George Miller and Baz Luhrmann and was producing international soundtracks in Australia. His background was his English originally and recorded music for the Rolling Stones. So he was bringing that sort of worldwide sensibility to Australia and really equipped a lot of people with, with that international knowledge of how to create a world-class product all the way down under. Nice. And, and what kind of, what kind of, first of all, I love uh, the Mad Max movies. Those were mm -hmm. growing up. I, I really grew up watching those amazing mm. films and George Miller is definitely a, a really accomplished guy. I've learned in recent times that right. he's also a physician and all these other things. And, uh -huh. Yeah. So that was, that's, that's kind of so, cool. Yeah. I mean, uh, it's not on my IMDb, I don't think, but I've just finished doing George's latest film. Wow. Oh, awesome. Yeah. Um, we're, well, we're not quite finished yet. We're, we're nearly finished. Nice. Um, and then we're going to move on to do uh, Furiosa. Excellent. So, yeah. Um, so what, what kind of music did you, did you do when you were a musician? Sure. Um, I, you know, I, in high school played in bands and, and then I had, you know, dreams of being a rock star. So, um, you know, that, that sort of didn't work out as planned. Um, what, and, what kind yeah. of, did you, you grew up on rock music oh, or? Yeah, it was, um, I think English influenced, um, it was the nineties, uh, English influenced music, um, at that time. So, you know, sort of stone roses, um, shoegaze, um, yeah, sort of experimental noise music as well, which I think really fed into sound design. When you think about that music at the time, it was um, sort of layered sounds and drones and experimental noise, and I think that that had a real push into into cinema at that time as well. So those two worlds weren't too far apart at that time. And, um, and that's still an area I'm really interested in. And I think is my sensibility is more in the emotional side of what sound can convey to an audience. Yeah. And can convey that through volume and frequency and, and, and ties into emotion. I, I completely agree. And um, aside from filmmaking myself, I also mentor film students and I always kind of emphasize, you know, newer people that are getting involved in film. I, I say everybody knows that film is a, a visual medium, but it's also an audio medium too. So I'm like, don't undermine the importance of that and, and how crucial that sure. is. I really always kind of stress that because that's something that, mm -hmm. that actually um, become more and more obsessed with. And, you know, as I progress in my own sort of filmmaking is just even thinking about the sound, even to a point where now when I'm screenwriting, I'm, really thinking about it on that level right and that's fantastic and you know i was really heavily influenced by people like david lynch where it's hard to imagine how he would imagine that in the script right a lot of it is, is through experimentation and and that's really where a lot of my sensibility comes from is not is you know, being inspired by by reading a script and thinking about what that might sound like, 
rather than a direct sound cue from the script. Right, right. That makes sense. Yeah, yeah. I wonder that'd be the reverse for me is thinking about it from a screenwriting point of view. How would I write that down? Because talking about sound is a bit like dancing about architecture. That's the the sort of classic analogy. It doesn't it doesn't really work. Yeah. But I think it, it ties into one thing that I think about cinema as as I sort of progress and what makes like a great movie, a great film and you know what differentiates great filmmakers is I, th- I think great filmmakers are able to and great films in general like when you're watching them you're just you're so immersed in the world almost like mm-hmm. hip- hypnosis like it's creating a vibe right. i would say it's it's, it's right. you know the the film has a vibe in 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 the sound design i feel like is yeah. absolutely instrumental into that totally and we talk about films having a tone right the tone of the film a noir film has a tone and tone is a musical terminology. That's true. Absolutely. For you, what are the challenges working on different productions? And like, do you approach them in a different way? Of like, you oh, know, hundred percent. I mean, what, what what I always tell people, and um, it's true, is you need to learn everything. You need to get all of your skills in place. Sort of, no matter what you do, if you're a know a shoemaker or a baker or whatever you do you need to have a chef you need to have all of your skills in place technically absolutely down and then you need to throw all that away and go with what you feel what the script is telling you what the image is telling you what the director is telling you and you need to never say oh well we can't do that because there can never be, that can't be done. Every project is is completely different and you need to approach it in that way. There's never been, there's never been a project that I've worked on that I've applied the same rules to as the, as the film previous. You learn from what you've done before and then you learn to let go even more and experiment even more and and just listen to what the director wants. I mean, it's the it's the director's film. And it's their unique vision. Um and it's a it's a collaboration, but you really gotta get in the headspace of what the director wants and what their unique vision for the film is. And hopefully you can hopefully I can bring Hopefully, I can I can do what the director is is thinking, or you know, yeah. be there, be their hands. I'm really interested in how different directors ap- approach sound design, mm-hmm. or do do some of them come in with all the ideas up front? Do some of them kind of let you take a pass on it, and then you're sort of tweaking things as you're going along and in, inside the room together? Or how does that usually work? Good. That's a good question. I, I, I always feel like they have a grand plan and I need to figure out how to deliver it. Like I always feel like, oh, I'm just, I'm just not getting it. I need to work harder to, to get where they want to go. No matter what the film or who the director, that's where I come, that's where I come at it from. I, I'm always I always feel like I've got a blank canvas and I don't know how to do it. You know, I always feel like it's like, oh, it's my first day on the job. I don't know how, I don't know how to do this. I think that's a good, yeah, that's I've, a good mentality. I've done it a bunch of times. That makes perfect sense, actually. I think that. Yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, I shouldn't. I should just be sort of more confident and think, hey, I've done a movie before. I know how to do this, but I never do. No, no, no. First of all, I can completely empathize um, because I always think, and maybe this is just completely my own way of thinking, but I always think when I'm approaching a new project, I don't think that it's automatically going to be good. I think the, that the gravitational (laughs) pull for something to be bad in general 
is immense and you have to fight yeah. an uphill battle for it to be good. You have to basically like, you know, work extremely hard and, you know, be extremely yeah. critical and as objective as possible and obviously yeah. collaborative for it to be good. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, that's that, that's exactly the feeling I have. It's like, oh, oh, I'm obviously wrong <laughs> and I've got to find those little nuggets of of right. Yeah. <laughs> But yeah, no, it's um, yeah. I guess that's what keeps us. That's what keeps us going to keep doing it again and again because so, somehow we think that we can do it better. Yes, and there's more to discover. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Otherwise, well, why well, would we go and sit in a dark room every day and make things louder and softer? Well said. Yeah, I think <laughs> I think that's what's uh, what's amazing about this this mm. this field of you know it's kind of a, a lifetime of learning and, and growing and evolving and, you know, always new mm -hmm. challenges. Um, I would imagine that the way that work has, has changed over the years, you know, I'm sure there's a lot more remote sort of things being done versus, I mean, like for you, for you, you're, you're working either way in the room, but as far as collaborating with others, then for instance, now we're, we're speaking over zoom where, you know, sure. years ago, somebody would have to be in person to do a podcast or, you know, you work with people all over the world, I would imagine. Yeah. Yeah. And always, always have done. That was also, a, you know, as I spoke about earlier, where I started with, um, with Roger, that was his thing. It was all international. So we started doing a lot of Asian cinema really early on in the, well, uh, for me, it was the late nineties, but, so it was it was email. The directors would always come over and be in the room with you, or I would go to China and be in the room with them. And it's still sort of the same. I did a Criterion box set remaster for Wong Kar Wai recently at the beginning of the pandemic. That was my first experience of not being able to go to Hong Kong or him not being able to come here or us not being able to go to Thailand. We did it remotely. That was my first and only experience in doing it. It worked fine. You know, he sat in a studio in Hong Kong. I was in Sydney and we got it done. But I there's there's really no substitute for having having, you know, the human contact of someone being next to you. There was still it was good, but it would have been it would have been better for both of us if we were in the same room together. Since then, and that was whenever the, you know, a few years ago, um, I haven't done a lot of remote work other than the regular email stuff. Uh, yeah, that, 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 hasn't, that hasn't happened. But the technology, for us, the technology has always been there. That hasn't, that hasn't been so much of a thing yeah. for us. For whatever reason, I mean, it may have been maybe different for other people in my field. They may have done more remote mixing. It's te it's technically possible. It's been technically possible for a while. You know, we did the whole work from home thing. It hasn't really changed much for us. Yeah, I, Which, I, yeah, I guess I, I'm I'm curious if um it, you know if there's ever kind of a fear doing something remotely that maybe maybe something gets lost in the sauce or, you know, like some sort of the, the, the quality so. is, you know, like sometimes I'm doing remote, you know, color grading. Like mm -hmm. I'm looking at something color wise. I'm just wondering, you know, is, is, is Alex, who, my colorist seeing something differently than I am? Like, I wonder if it's the same kind of feeling with, with the sound. Yeah, sure. Th th there's that, there's definitely that because you're talking about such small nuances there's definitely that. I, I think it's, and I can't explain this. I don't, uh, don't, I'm only thinking about it now that you mention it, but there's, there's definitely something about being in the same room together. Yeah. So I, so you might be happy to hear that I did, I did a super micro budget feature film that uh, mm -hmm. I co-wrote, I, I directed it and we made a very conscious decision to spend a really disproportionate amount of the budget on the sound design. We spent a, a lot of money on the sound design of the film. And, and mm -hmm. that was kind of a conscious decision early on because I personally believe 
people are even more forgiving of sometimes bad picture, which we, we happen, we have, we had a great cinematographer that I've worked with over and over again, but, but I, but I think in general, people are more forgiving of bad picture than they are of bad sound. I think bad sound immediately pulls you out of a project. Oh, for sure. I mean, yeah. Of a film, I should say. It it immediately pulls you out of a film if you're watching it. Well, you can't, yeah, you can't with, it makes the film unwatchable on a, say a streaming service or something. If, if the sound's cutting in and out. Yeah. Yeah. If, if the picture's a bit steppy, misses some frames, um, you can still follow the film. Exactly. If the sound cuts in and out on a piece of music, on dialogue, it makes it unwatchable. I, on that level, I, I completely, yeah, that's, I think that's, that, that's all the streaming services recognise that fact. Yeah. On that level, yeah. Um, and then d- d- deeper than that, I, 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 I can't comment. I always think of sound as the lowly cousin to the picture and we're always trying to work a bit harder to, to come up to where the picture is. So, yeah, <laughs> I'll leave that up to the director to make that call. <laughs> yeah, I will say that when I worked on my film and just like thinking we had a fantastic sound designer, uh, Shout out to Julian Evans, who really he mm. was was outstanding. And uh, I I remember I literally put out like a posting in New York City, and I think we had like well over a hundred people write to us. So I remember going through making a spreadsheet and literally going through like a hundred different people's like websites and their reels. But one one actually important criteria for me was I wanted a a sound designer that was also a musician, right. Know? And then, you know, yeah. and we had other people that did the score and, you know, they did a fantastic job with the score. Um, mm. But, but I just wanted somebody that had a, uh, just a background in music, you know, just a. Sure. Yeah. I think it's, I think it certainly helps. And the more that, the more that I pursue music, the, the I become a better sound person. And a better, um, a better artist and a better filmmaker as well. Are you are you a fan of Walter Murch? Yeah, of course. Yeah. <laughs> He's the kind godfather. of like the, the godfather of sound design. And if, right. I, if I'm not mistaken, he was the first person where I think Coppola, Francis Ford Coppola, when they were doing Apocalypse Now, uh, credited him as sound designer. Right? That that, that yeah, wasn't I think, I think so. a credit before that. If I yeah. if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, that's right. I mean, and he's written books, um, gives lots of lectures on that subject as well, and he's got a lot of fantastic concepts about the pyra- the pyramid of sound and what's important. I mean, sound, unlike picture, and 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 I don't know. I mean, now it's it's a bit different now with really sophisticated color grading, but I think with picture you've got focus, color, contrast. You know, with sound there are so many layers that can go into it and you've got that on just you know for one sound for for the for a you know a gunshot or a punch or a wind you've got those multiple layers of the sound and then you've got the mix where you've got all of those multiple layers of sound made into one sound compounded so you've got thousands you know tens of thousands of elements um and you've got to make the decision about which one the audience hears, because people can only hear, you know, three three sounds at a time. And Walter Murch was really good at articulating how that works. Yeah, in a in, in film language, and that's something that I behold really dear is you know with all of the layers of sound that you have and all of the frequencies you need to focus on what's happening on the picture, what's the storytelling, what's the emotion, and pinpoint that one sound. You've you've really only got about three to choose from at the end of the day, and it's that focus that's super important. That makes sense. And and maybe you could talk a little bit more more about the artistic approach of what you do. Is it, you look at it, is it more artistic or is it more technical? 
in nature? Mm -hmm. Uh, it's, 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 it's certainly both. I like to think that we learn all of the technical and we continue to learn all of the technical, but you, you need to keep that, you need to keep that to yourself to give the director the artistic freedom that they want to explore. So I always try to, to make the technical invisible. So when the director asks me to do something, no matter what, no matter what it is, I never mention the technical because in their eyes it's irrelevant and it should be irrelevant and it should be my job to give them the art that they want without the restrictions of, of, a, of a technical um, reason of why they can't achieve that. So uh, that's, that's probably one of my biggest um, things about what I do is, yeah. is I don't is I really focus on trying to bring the director what they want artistically and don't put technical roadblocks in their way. Oh, that makes perfect sense. Uh, I'm, I'm sort of curious about certain things that people do. Like for, for example, I've read on uh, about the movie top gun that for the plane mm -hmm. engines that they record and use the sounds of animals like lions and tigers and monkeys yeah. and things. Is there ever things like that that you sort of employ? Oh yeah, all, all the time. That's 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 the fun stuff. Yeah, I actually had the the great honor of working with Kevin O'Connell, who mixed Top Gun, and we've done a bunch of films together. Amazing. Recently, that's amazing. Yeah, yeah. It's, and so I'm, you know, we're always asking about Top Gun, <laughs> <laughs> and it's 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 true. The the animals, the the, the tigers and the lions, and the sound editor on that film, um, George Waters. He, you know, they were cutting on Moviola. They were cutting on film. And Tony Scott, who's, you know, an absolute monster when it comes to sound, you know, they spent a lot of time on that mix and they would cut, you know, gunshots and and uh, explosions on the on the head of those cuts where the you know the jet engines are are blasting. It's amazing what you can get away with with crazy sounds. And I've got this theory about animal sounds and that is that i think you know maybe evolutionary wise we're programmed to be scared of lions and tigers and big beasts so when you cut those sounds into a movie there's something deep within the human psyche that recognizes that and that's why those sounds are so effective that makes perfect sense right yeah, yeah. Um, there's there's something you know. <laughs> our ancestors ran from these beasts, and when we hear them cut into a uh, an exhaust pipe or a, a jet engine going past, we we have a you know <laughs> our ears go up a hundred percent because biologically we're very old machines, <laughs> right? <laughs> Even though we live in modern times and human beings have evolved in, in civilization, arguably, but. <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> um, <laughs> But you know, biologically, we're we're very old machines. I, I think you know yeah. we're we're not different than we were hundreds of thousands of years ago in in certain ways, yeah. or at least tens yeah, of thousands so those, of years ago. Yeah, those sounds are super effective. You use them on you know arrows or you know anything aggressive, anything where you want to make people stand up and pay attention uh, or get some aggression. You know, bobcats, um, Tasmanian devils. Koalas, yeah, <laughs> lions, tigers. We, we mentioned Tony Scott, which rest in peace to Tony Scott. He was such a fantastic, yeah, fantastic director. Um, and I love Ridley Scott too. But and I always mm. hate how in the news they're like, when when Tony Scott passed away, they were like Tony Scott was like the younger brother of Ridley Scott, who was the more successful director. I'm like, oh why? I'm God. like, I'm like, how could they say that? This he directed Top Gun. He directed True Romance. True Romance is one of my favorite films. Absolutely. Yeah, that was that was, you know, we talked about when I was, you know, coming into filmmaking and that was a crossover thing for me. Like when I was into music and then into film, true romance was right up there. True romance, David Lynch. Yeah. yeah. I saw I saw a racer head, David Lynch's eraser head. They they kind of had like a 35 millimeter uh screening of it at the IFC 
Center in New York a few years ago, mm-hmm. and I saw it. I was lucky enough to see it in theaters on on the big screen, wow. and I really had a, an appreciation for the movie watching it that way. Oh yeah, yeah. But um, yeah, and uh, Tony had just such an amazing way with sound and and and, and editing. Um, yeah, I would have loved the opportunity to work with him. Yeah, there is. So there's a scene in True Romance where with uh, Christopher Walken and Dennis Hopper, where Dennis Hopper is. You remember the scene where he's essentially being interrogated mm-hmm. about where his son is by Christopher Walken, mm-hmm. who's this mafia boss, and they offer him a cigarette. He's like, "Do you want a Chesterfield?" And the way he lights and smokes that cigarette, you hear kind of. I remember right. when I was first watching that as, you know, as a kid and not really probably I saw that movie when I was like 12, 13 years old and just feeling that for the first time, I'm like, Oh wow. They really got the sound of him lighting the cigarette and like the smoke. It really, it sounds, you know, incredible. And I'm not sure I haven't, I haven't quite worked out why that is so effective. The first time I was aware of that was Baz Luhrmann's Romeo and Juliet when John Leguizamo stamps out the, the lights the match and throws it and stamps it out. Thought that was the coolest thing ever. Um, and we've been exploring that a lot with Jane Campion's uh, new film, The Power of the Dog. For some reason, when you focus in on those really close details, you feel what the character is feeling. You're some somehow the detail, hearing the detail in, in touching skin, you know, the striking of a match, the polishing of a um, of a saddle, hearing that detail affects us somehow. Uh, I'm not quite sure why. Maybe it's something to do with um, the world is so quiet that you can hear it. Um, don't understand the psychology behind it, but it's incredibly effective. And, and I think that's one of the reasons why the power of the dog is getting so much attention at the moment is because of, is because of that. Exactly Congrat- what you're talking about in the true romance. And congratulations on that film. I know it's getting a ton of acclaim. Mm. Um, how yes. was it? How was it working with uh, Jane Campion? Uh, I, I mean, I'd worked with Jane um, on her Top of the Lake series. You know, it was just such a wonderful experience. I mean, she's a true artist and a true collaborator, and someone that just loves to sit with you and explore. So, you know, she's made a lot of movies before. And she comes into to each movie with a, a sense of awe and innocence, you know. So what does, you know, what does sound do? You know, like like it's her first time. And yeah. that's perfect, you know. She doesn't have misconceptions and, you know, all that kind of stuff, just sits down and, and wants to explore. And and that's that's a that's a true gift for someone. To be given that opportunity, for, for me to be given that opportunity to sit with a director um, and explore, you know, get in the sandpit and explore what sound can do on the film is a, you know, once in a lifetime opportunity. Yeah. Well, twice in a lifetime. <laughs> yeah. I remember seeing her film even when I was uh, a young kid, The Piano. That made a strong oh impression on me with Har- Harvey Keitel and, Really amazing film. She's oh, really, I saw she's an the, incredible filmmaker. Yeah, I saw the restoration print of that just on Netflix or wherever it's on. You know, I was just scrolling around, and this was a couple of years ago. Oh, the piano! Haven't seen that for a while. It looks like it was made yesterday. You know, because they went back to the to the neg. It looks and sounds like it was made yesterday. It's so contemporary. Unbelievable. I have to revisit it. Uh, but I, I remember mm. even the the visuals and just the whole, like talk about a cinematic vibe and, you know, that's right. really a, a, a very cinematic, hard hitting, powerful film. 
Mm. Yeah, and it sounds amazing. Lee Smith, you know, Lee Smith was the sound designer on uh, on the piano and he's now Christopher Nolan's editor. So he's got The Dark Knight and Tenant and... That's so, amazing. Yeah. yeah, that's pretty cool. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I really enjoyed Tenant, actually. I, I, I like Christopher yeah. Nolan quite a bit. So you won an Academy Award for Best Sound Design for Hacksaw Ridge. Mm-hmm. That's pretty incredible. Yeah. <laughs> and, sure was. And, and first of all, amazing film. Uh, we talked a little bit about it before we started rolling yeah, on the podcast, you. but you know that was a really impactful, incredible film. Yeah. And, and it's amazing that it's a true story, by the way. Totally remarkable story. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and apparently, uh, I mean, Mel would always say, there are so many true stories about Desmond Dawes and he had them in the film, but it made the film unbelievable Yeah, because the stories were so unbelievable that it took the audience out of the film. Absolutely. Yeah. That was a really, so we had to cut some of the true stories because they were, they were too extraordinary. You know, the guy was too extraordinary to even put on film. Yeah. As, as I mentioned before the podcast, I, uh, I was kind of following along with that story. I, I know the producer, David Permit, or one of the mm-hmm. producers, I know Bill Mechanic was uh, one of the other producers, and, mm. and uh, I believe David had the rights to it when it was called The Conscientious Objector. So I was excited to see the film for years before it even uh, premiered. So it was kind of when I did see it in the theater, I, w- I remember seeing, I kind of cut out of work early one day to go see it by myself in the movie theater. Oh, great. <laughs> and, uh, there was a group of elderly people that were actually watching the film with me that kind of, you know, were really, you know, we were just all really moved by it. You know, it's like, it was one of those situations where you watch a film and it's just like the, it's, it's like the communal experience of watching that film just sort of transcend. (laughs) Exactly. And I'll tell you what, we went to an audience preview screening. We were mixing in Culver city and we went down to, Orange County for, you know, one of those audience preview screenings where they hand out tickets and come and see a movie and and you fill out the feedback form and and stuff. And I was sitting there in the the theatre and Mel was behind me wearing a fake moustache and a, you know, fake hat and (laughs) it's like taps you on the shoulder. Oh, God. Right, so Mel's here, and we're, we're with a full cinema watching the, the film, and that was when I got it. That's when I got what a master filmmaker he is, the way he had these people on the edge of their seat, and then, you know, once he'd sucked them in, you know, obliterated them. It was, it was such a moving experience and such a learning experience in, in a, a master filmmaker. Yeah. I, I, Apocalypto, I feel like is, is also kind of an underrated film that he did. Well, I don't want to say underrated people that have seen it, you know, know that it's Mm. brilliant, but that that's also an amazing film. Yeah. But as you say, like with an audience takes on a whole different dimension. It's so important. Yes. To be able to direct that, to be able to know when you're in your own little bubble, you've just with your editor, you're with your sound team, you're with your colorist, whatever, to know how that's going to work when you put it in front of an audience and have it take on that other dimension blew my mind. It, it, it came full circle because you were working with Mad Max himself. <laughs> True. <laughs> I grew, yeah, I, I grew up watching his films. And I remember even seeing like lethal weapon, like part two, when I was in the movie theater as a kid and, you know, you know, all, all those experience of going to the cinema, you know? Um, and so I, I, I do think that being there in person in the cinema is the true way to experience sort of a film. Oh yeah. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Um, the same thing happened when I watched the power of the dog for the first time in the cinema. I, you know, I was I had my son next to me and we were in a packed theater. And I got it. I got what Jane was doing, building up the tension, having everyone on the edge of their seats. 
Like, you know, that's, you know, the, the, these directors are people that that understand how to reach people, how to affect people. Yeah. And, and, and yeah, with a, with a crowd, it's, it takes on a whole other dimension. What was the, so what was it like winning an Oscar? Um, I wasn't, I wasn't prepared for it at all. Oh, so you were, you, you, you didn't, you didn't expect to win or like, like, I, I guess that, like that moment before you're called your name, what was that like? Well, let's put it this way. I was, you know, I'm in Australia. It's a long way from anywhere, obviously. And I nearly didn't go. Wow. <laughs> right. Cause yeah. I've like, oh, got, I've got, I've got to go to work. Um, I've got stuff to do. Like, can I, can I afford to go over and just, you know, go to an awards ceremony? I, I, I'm not sure. And, you know, certain people said, dude, you got to go. Yeah. If there's one so, ceremony that you should go to, that's probably <laughs> the one. <laughs> so, so I went and, you know, we're sitting there. I was sitting next to, to, to Kevin, who's been nominated 21 times. He sat in that theatre. 21 times and never won. Oh, wow. That's rough. Right? Yeah. And and the, and the whole press thing's about how this guy has been nominated 21 times and, and never won. And I was sweating bullets. I can't imagine what he was feeling. And, like, I swear, like, right before the announcement, he just tapped me on the shoulder and went, hey, Rob. Your life's never gonna be the same again. And I'm like, whatever. And then they announced it and we won. Wow. It was, yeah. You know, if it was big for me, which it was, it was huge for him. Like he was just in shock. Like he was just being a smart ass, you know, he's <laughs> lost a million times. <laughs> I don't know. There's I I do think sometimes I was at an award ceremony, obviously nothing on that magnitude. But for us, uh, we felt like the underdogs because I had a really right. small, this micro budget film and we were out in Las Vegas and, you know, there's literally like 200 films at this festival and I was nominated for best director at the festival. Mm -hmm. And it was totally like in an underdog sort of situation because our budget was, I didn't disclose what our budget was with the film festival because mm -hmm. I just wanted them to either like the film or they didn't like the film, oh. not based off what budget it was. But it definitely felt like, you know, we were competing with these way bigger films, um, even though they were indie films, but we were like on the smallest tier. And right before when they were like um, best director, my dad and my brother were there. I'm like, oh, man, I, like I, I had almost like a weird premonition two seconds earlier. Not that I did earlier in the night, but it was like just a couple like moments before. I'm like, I think they're going to call my name like like i, I right. looked at my and then, then they called my name i'm like what and i still kind of felt even i wasn't even prepared to do a speech you know because uh -huh. i was like wow like you know like i just won best director at this film festival this is insane you know so Isn't it was it, it was insane yeah it's such a weird feeling it's such a weird feeling of oh okay i won and <laughs> like for me it was um yeah, just that. It was so it was so odd. But Kevin was right. My life was never the same again. That's incredible. It was such an amazing experience. Um yeah. But <laughs> so good. That's awesome. I well, can't be cynical about that. I can be cynical about many things. <laughs> no, it's well deserved. Well, well deserved. So that's that's amazing. And it was an amazing film all around, you know, everybody that, you know, congratulations to everybody on that film because it really. Yeah. I mean, but really, you know, isn't it funny? Like working on that film was enough of an experience for me. It was, an, it was an, it was enough that I got, I got to go to Hollywood. I got to work with Kevin. I got to work with Mel. Like that was enough. <laughs> and then to be called back was ridiculous icing on the cake yeah I, I, andrew garfield was really strong 
in the film. I thought, you know, he's amazing. Yeah, yeah. He Andrew came into the mix, and you know, no one recognised him. He's wearing his his baseball cap or whatever, and comes and sit down next to Mel, and they're chatting away. I reckon it was you know half an hour before Mel said, "Oh, hey guys, um, Andrew's here." <laughs> <You know? laughs> it was that kind of, you know. I don't know I thought Hollywood would be more sort of razzle dazzle, but it wasn't. It was more sort of just chill and getting a job done. That's pretty cool. Yeah. Um. So, are there? You've worked on many genres of films. Are there any genres that you haven't worked on that you would like to work on? Um, animation. Haven't done um, any any animation, but um, no, I'm pretty happy with um, with with where I'm sitting in the in the genre field. I mean, I've been. I always thought that I'd be more suited to to drama and experimental film and and film that that had um sound and music as one you know where you couldn't tell the difference between sound and music um that's where i think my my skill set uh lies at the moment and where i thought it it lay when i very first began that was my that was um what i wanted to get into and then i ended up getting into um action movies, which is totally the opposite to my taste. You know, when I was um, growing up, I was I would fast forward the action scenes in movies. You know, in the 80s, you'd have your obligatory action scene. I'd be like, oh, well, they're going to, like, have a car chase and a punch-up and whatever, fast forward, bop, 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 bop. Okay, back to the drama. Like, literally, that's what I'd do. So I had no interest in action at all. And that's what I built my career on, <laughs> action movies. So I must bring something you, you, to the action. Yeah, and, and also you've happened to work on some pretty great ones. So, right? <laughs> so that also is helpful. <laughs> if, it was, if it was a gunfight, I'd fast forward it, and I end up doing Hacksaw Ridge. But I think what I must do... In the in the battle, you know, I know what I do in the battle scenes of films, you know, like Hacksaw Ridge. Is I is I look for the drama in the action. I look for every sound and every frame, and and I look for the emotion in the weapons, the emotion in the in the scene. I don't treat it like the films that I used to watch in the in the eighties, where it's just bang bang bang, blah blah blah. Um, I guess that's what I do. I try and treat the action scenes like drama. <laughs> Maybe that's why. No, that works. makes that makes perfect sense to me because I think there was a. I do think there was a, a fundamental difference between action films, for instance, in the 1970s versus the 80s. Mm, mm. Like you know, films like The French Connection mm. versus you know, mm. you know, films that were coming out right? decade later. And they later. got really sort of blanded out in the 80s, where you just have your obligatory action scene. Right, right. Versus something that's character driven, and then the uh -huh. action—you're still completely vested into what's happening with those characters, which, yeah. which I think is like with uh, Hacksaw Ridge, like that. You know, like the action sequences were impactful because you really care about what's happening with Desmond and you know right. all the other characters as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I would like to think so. I mean, they're they're like really. Um, Incredibly orchestrated, yeah. those action scenes. Um, as are all action scenes that I would work on. Is is it ever a challenge for you, um, knowing that not everybody might be hearing the project in an optimal way? Like, for instance, some people are watching it on a laptop or a cell phone versus a TV or home theater no. versus the cinema. No, I think sound is all about um uh emotion and balance 
and I would like to think that you could you could watch a film that I mixed on an iPhone um, and you'd still be, if you're invested in the drama, you know, as long as you don't have too much background noise, you've still got the same dynamics on the iPhone that you do in the cinema. Um, obviously, it's going to be much, much better and, you know, for yourself, more immersive, more enjoyable to see it on a good sound system in the cinema. But I don't get too cut up about that. What I would get cut up about is if there's too much compression or something applied to the track before it reaches the listener. But I'm pretty confident that whatever leaves my fingers at the mixing board, if that if that ends up on an iPhone, I'm happy with that. If nothing happens in between that, I'm okay with that. It's That's not right. ideal. But people can listen on headphones. That's a, that's incredible, right? Headphones are amazing. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah no, I I think that that it's all about it's all about balance and all about focus. So no, I don't get too cut up about that. It's it's funny because I I have two young kids, so um, my wife and I because usually by the time we actually could watch something, it's it's like right after we've put the kids to bed. Right. So I have a, a Roku TV that has a, has a, in, in the remote, it has like a headphone jack. So we watch movies with headphones like this and like a splitter right. just because we're not trying to wake up the kids, but it's a, it's actually a good way to watch. stuff. It's great. You get a stereo image, you get bottom end, you get top end. Yeah. Watching on headphones is fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. It's yeah. I'm all for it. Because I'd rather um, yeah. I'd rather watch it that way versus watching it so quiet that we're not trying to wake the kids up and you're like trying to figure out what's going on. Exactly. You know, you have sort of different codecs and stuff that that interfere with that, um, but for the most part, it's pretty good. The streaming services do a pretty good job with that, depending on your internet connection. Yeah, absolutely. So, is there ever? Earlier in the conversation, you kind of talked about how your philosophy is to, you know, serve the director on the, mm. on the artistic vision of the film, but is there ever kind of a disagreement about how a scene should be like sound wise? Um. Yes and no. I mean, that's a, that's a difficult question because there's so much background that goes into um, into the project before I get to it. So I'm only learning more recently that I I need to be more sort of sensitive to that. I, I look at the scene on face value, right? I'm like, right. why would you want, why would you want to do that? Like, I don't get it. Um, and then you might find, find out, oh, because they'd had some previous, previous screenings where they thought that that character was too aggressive or, or whatever. And there's a whole lot of backstory that has now influenced you know, it's like, well, once we get to sound, we can do this. But it's never prefaced that way. It's never never comes to me like, well, we've had all of these issues with this scene. We thought once we bring it to sound, maybe you could do this. I never get that story. I just get the, maybe that could be louder. Maybe that could be, you know, try that. You know, I'm like, well, why? I don't get it. That's silly. Gotcha. Yeah. Um, But I kind of see the, I I see the both sides of it though, because hmm. on, on some sense you should look at it objectively. Right. Um, Of Hmm. what, but then I guess it's, it's, yeah, I I see, I see where you're coming from though. So I think that's where, that's the only time I get a bit unstuck is where I'm defending the film. I'm saying it's a great scene. What, what, why are we compromising? It's 
Why don't, let's go for it. And then I find out, oh, no, it's because they want to do something with sound because of some sort of insecurity about the scene. But I don't see the insecurity about the scene. That makes perfect sense. Because right. I've done a lot, I've done a lot of editing in general. I come from an editing uh-huh. background, and there's absolutely been times when, when something is strong, and then <laughs> people sort of second guess themselves, and then they're like, "Well, right. maybe we shouldn't do that. Maybe we shouldn't go with that bold of a choice, or some or something like that." You know, and then it kind of gets watered down. Yeah, I've been in so many situations where, you know, I guess the director's insecure about the the visual effects and it's like, you know, then they want to overcompensate with the sound and I don't get it. Like, why are we making this so loud? Right. I don't understand. Right, right. It's fun. Yeah. Yeah. That and means- then I find out, oh, it's because they're not happy with that particular visual effect. So we've got to make it really loud. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. If that answers your question. Yeah, no, no, it does actually. And I really appreciate that. You know, that actually uh, makes perfect sense. I can, I can imagine that. Um, What, what kind of advice would you give to somebody that was pursuing this field? Um, Um, the um concentrate on you know watch movies we're we're, we're filmmakers we're not sound makers we're, we're sound makers but we're really filmmakers and i think a lot of sound people um when they start out i'm completely guilty of this myself focused on how good something sounds or the fidelity of something um but where what we're trying to do is serve the story, serve the edit, serve the picture. Um, and we have to make a lot of sonic sacrifices to serve all of all of those masters. Um, so to have an understanding of that would be amazing. I don't know how you how. Hey, you get that because if you're interested in sound, then you're interested in how things sound. But if you're interested in sound for film, you really need to understand the role that sound plays in relation to 